John chapter 8. In our lesson this morning, in your books, we're on lesson number 88. It's entitled Dilemma After the Feast. We're going to be talking about John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. If you remember, our lesson closed last time with the end of what feast? Right, the Feast of Tabernacles and every one we saw in John seven fifty three, every man going unto his own house, home, to spend the evening. But where did Jesus and his disciples go? Yes, chapter 8, verse 1 tells us Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. You see, it was definitely a time of spiritual darkness for Israel when she had no place for God. You know, it had been some 600 years since the Shekinah glory of God had departed from Israel. You remember the prophet Ezekiel watched it depart and then Ichabod was written over the nation? Well, after 600 years of the Shekinah glory of God not dwelling with Israel, he had returned. It had returned in the person of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, that glory was veiled in human flesh. But when he first came, we found that Israel had no room for him from the very beginning, did she? She had no room for him in her inns down there in Bethlehem. And then as we've looked at his earthly life, we've seen that uh, his hometown of Nazareth, once he began his public ministry, even Nazareth had no place for him because she tried to push him off of a cliff. Who else had no place for him? Well, most of the Galileans had no place for him in their hearts. They liked having him around to perform miracles, but they had no place for him in their hearts. And then we even saw that the, the people of the Gadarenes had no room for him. Remember when he made that trip across the sea and had the storm and got there and, and the, the, the people of Gadara preferred their pig prophets to the Son of God. They begged him to depart from their coast. I think it might have been in May when the Samar that particular Samaritan village, when they saw that his face was set like flint to go to Jerusalem and not to worship where they worshipped at Mount Gerizim, they didn't want they didn't want him to stay in their their local motels either, did they? So there was no room for 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 God. God was so unknown by his own beloved wife Israel that she had no place for him, even within the city of David, in the city of Jerusalem, where he should, of all places on earth, where he should have been recognized and known we find that he was not invited into any man's home. And it's kind of sad for me to think that even Nicodemus didn't invite him home to spend the night with him. Even though we saw last time that Nicodemus was moving out of the darkness and into the light, he hadn't quite arrived yet, had he? Instead, the Lord Jesus and his men were forced to spend the night outside the city, uh, up on the Mount of Olives. Now, that is a beautiful place to spend the night, you know, out under the stars overlooking the city of Jerusalem on the east, it would have been a beautiful place. But still, it speaks of the spiritual condition of Israel at that time. Now, the adulteress who is brought before Jesus in John chapter 8 represents, we could say symbolically, represents the nation of Israel, the espoused of God. Israel, at this point, had lost her love for God, and she no longer had an intimate relationship with him. Instead, we could say she was sleeping with her lover. She was sleeping with 
her form of Judaism that was all about rituals and regulations and traditions and ceremonies and feasts. Remember we read, where was that? John 7 verse 2. It said, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. The Jews had taken the Lord out of the feast of tabernacles, out of all the feasts. It originally was called the feast of the Lord, but here John was inspired to call it the Jews' feast. So they had they had been sleeping with their lover, which allowed them to feel um, to feed their lust, her lust, Israel's lust, while still feeling quote unquote religious, right? So while he and his men slept peacefully under the stars, Israel, represented by her rulers, her religious rulers, the scribes and Pharisees primarily, they were up to no good. While he was sleeping up on the Mount Mount of Olives, just like the adulterous woman, the rulers of Israel were up to no good. They were being unfaithful to God. But... Regardless of the unfaithfulness and disbelief of his own beloved Israel, Jesus was on a divine mission, wasn't he? He he knew, even before he stepped out of heaven, all about the rejection and everything that he would be that he would encounter, and yet it did not discourage him, it did not frustrate him, he would not quit. He had come to seek and to save that which was lost. He had come to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to invite all men to enter into that kingdom by coming to him. So he would not be stopped. And early the next morning, look at John 8, verse 2. Early the next morning, the day after the Feast of Tabernacles had ended. Remember, that was a seven-day long feast. So this is now the eighth day, which is always a Sabbath. Even in Israel today, after the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, the very next day, even if it falls on a Tuesday is considered a Sabbath, so nobody does anything. Nobody can walk too far. Nobody can take down booths. So the people are still there. The eighth day is, has, is, an, is another feast. It's a man-made feast, which I can't remember the name of it, but uh, it's a holiday today. But uh, early the next morning, the day after the feast, he went where? Straight again to the temple in order to teach, just like he had done Back in chapter 7, verse 14, when he first arrived in the midst of the feast, it tells us he went straight to the temple and began to teach. If the religious authorities had hoped to scare him off by their attempted arrest with the temple guard, remember we looked at that last time? They sent the temple police to arrest him. If they thought they were going to scare him off, they were very badly mistaken. Evening may have found him with no welcoming Jewish bed to sleep in, but dawn found him back in his father's house. Isn't that interesting? You know, whenever Jesus is in Jerusalem and you want to find him, where do you go? When his parents couldn't find him and he was 12 years old, where should they have known to look? In the temple, because he was always about his father's business. That was the most likely place to look for Jesus. And uh, he, he went there, and John 2, 2, 7, 8, 2, tells us that all the people came unto him. So what did he do? He sat down. See, that's, that's what teachers used to do. They would sit down. I think that's a, a nice idea. I always, I always like that idea. If I sat down right now, you'd never see me. But, <laughs> but the teacher would sit down. And teach. And it says all the people. Interesting. Like I said, it was a Sabbath. So 
They couldn't take down their booths because of that. And so what did they do on the Sabbath? They went to the temple. The multitudes of um, uh, Feast of Tabernacles pilgrims that had come from all of the other provinces of Israel and even all of the other countries of the diaspora, they came to the temple that day. They Maybe even the temple guard, the temple police came back. Don't you think they did? Never man spake like this man. We want to hear some more of his speaking. I wouldn't be surprised if they were there. It says all the people. So he sat down and he taught them. I mean, this was one more great opportunity for them, the people, to not only see the great temple, which the Jews were so proud of, but also to hear this amazing teacher, this Jesus, this unpredictable man. When he was around, you never knew what might happen. And something spectacular always happened. Remember now, these people didn't have televisions. They didn't have uh, movie theaters. They didn't have any places for entertainment. So he was, he was very entertaining because when he was around, either there was a confrontation with their, with their rulers, which was always very interesting, or there were some shocking claims that he would make. For example, in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, what did he say? He said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Now, that was shocking. He's always making shocking claims. Or there would be some spectacular miracle. For example, when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda last time he was in Jerusalem in John chapter 5. But they didn't want to miss anything. And guess what? This day, this day is going to be a long day. We're going to be in this day for a long time. A lot of things happen on this day, this, this eighth day the set of, after the Feast of Tabernacles, but they're not going to be disappointed one single bit at all the things that they're going to experience on this day. So it was while Jesus sat teaching the people that the scribes and the Pharisees abruptly enter onto the scene. Of course, right? <laughs> they, don't, they don't quit, even though they'd had uh, trouble with the temple guard arresting him. They're not going to quit. So they very rudely enter the scene disrupting his teaching, you know, showing no respect for him and his teaching, and they thrust before him an adulterous woman along with their corrupt question. And that's what we're going to look at in part one of our outline. You wondered, was I ever going to read the text? All right, let's look at number one, the situation, and for this we'll look at verses, well, let me start at verse one, and we'll read through the first part of verse six. Chapter 8 of John says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. All right. The scribes and the Pharisees saw to it that Jesus Christ was given no rest from criticism. They were his chief antagonists, weren't they? So once again, he encountered his enemies. And once again, where did he encounter them? Do you know, it's so interesting, if you look through all his confrontations with the religious rulers, it's either in synagogues or it's in temples. So I guess the lesson for us is, if you want trouble, go to church. (laughs) (laughs) What? 
Well, yes, I know. I was being facetious there, Terry. She's always correcting me. <laughs> the enemy viewed absolutely nothing as sacred when it came to attacking Jesus Christ. It didn't matter to them that this was a holy place. It didn't matter to them. You know, they were the sticklers about the Sabbath, but it didn't seem to matter to them. You know, he's going to heal in John chapter 9 a blind man, a man who was born blind on the Sabbath day, and they get all bent out of shape about it because it's a work. They don't care that the man has been, was, been blind his whole life. They don't rejoice over that. But here, it's no problem for them to go out and find an adulterous woman and, and shove her into the crowd and desecrate the temple. You know, you think about Antiochus Epiphanes having desecrated the, the temple back in 168 or 165 B.C. when he slaughtered a pig on the, on the altar. And you think about what the Antichrist is going to do in the future days when he desecrates the temple. But you know what these scribes and Pharisees are doing? By, by this, they're desecrating the temple. They show no respect here for the temple or for the Lord, for his teaching. They, um, although these men were an acu accusing an adulteress, who were they really after? Were they really interested in, in, in launching a moral cleanup campaign in Jerusalem? Not at all. No, they were doing it to um, tempt him, to, to cause him to to uh, discredit himself so that they could be, uh, they could do away with him. You know, remember when he went in the first time, when he went to Jerusalem into the temple? No, besides when he was 12 years old. And besides when he was eight days old and got circumcised and all that. <laughs> but the first time in his public ministry, he went in and he cleansed it, remember? <clears throat> and he had said that they were making his father's house into what? A den of thieves. Now he could add to that that they were making his father's house a den of iniquity a den of ungodly connivers, because that's exactly what these guys were. They were a bunch of connivers. They show contempt for his teaching. As I can imagine, you know, you got to picture thousands and thousands of people, maybe even three million people in Jerusalem at this time. And so here they come. You know they've got to be shoved. They're in the court of the women, by the way, in the temple. We'll talk more about that, Lord willing, next week. But they're they've got to shove people aside so they can they can bring this poor woman. Now, I'm not condoning her sin. Yes, she was an adulteress, and that's a terrible sin. They're, but they're bringing her in front of him, and they've got to push everybody aside. No concern for his teaching or his person. And don't you imagine that they just shoved her down in the midst? And what, did, what do you think she must have looked like? What does it say? That she was caught in the very act? woman probably didn't have much time to grab her clothes, get dressed. Sure, her hair was hanging down. And for a woman back in those days to have her hair down was very shameful. And here she is shoved into the middle of all these hundreds and thousands of eyes looking at her. It was bad enough that she's got all the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees looking at her. And then she's got all these people looking at her. And the worst would be the eyes of the Holy One of, um, of, of God looking at her. But I picture them, them throwing her down in front of him. This was an attack upon him. You see, it says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, now listen to these little connivers here, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. What they're doing here, their motives haven't changed one single bit. They're still out to get Jesus. But they are changing their tactics. Um, before they have tried to murder him. Well, we've talked about the fact that Nazareth tried to push him off a cliff, but many times it says, it, it has said already in our um, Life of Christ study, 
that they wanted to lay hands on him. To do what? To kill him. There were times they wanted to throw stones at him. Just the day before, they had sent, sent the temple police to arrest him. So uh, they're changing their tactics here, and they're trying now to pretentiously show respect by calling him master, which means like master teacher, rabbi. They're just, they're just, and they're seeking his judgment. They're pretending like they're asking his judgment. You know, Moses said this. But what do you say? They're just a bunch of pretentious hypocrites. Arthur Pink says that they sought to impale him on the horns of a dilemma. You know, if Satan can't succeed by being a roaring lion, he'll change his tactics and disguise himself as an angel of light. And that's what these guys are doing here. But are they fooling Jesus? Of course not. Even if, if uh, John 8 verse 6 did not tell us that this situation was a trap, we would have been able to figure this out for several reasons. First of all, it's very inconsistent for these men to now refer to Jesus as master when all week long, what have they been doing? They've been criticizing him. And remember when they were combing the city to begin with, looking for him because he didn't arrive until the midst of the week, about the third day, and they were going among the people saying, where is he? And we looked at the word he. They were really saying, where is that deceiver? And remember how they had answered the temple guard when the temple guard came back in verse uh, 46 of chapter 7, and the officer said, never man spake like this man. Well, look at verse 47. How did they answer the temple guard? Are ye also deceived? They've been calling Jesus a deceiver. He's one deceiving all the people. And now here, you know, this is pretentious, hypocritical flattery by calling him master. And although normal men might be tricked by human flattery, the Son of God is not. Nor is he fooled when the enemy quotes scripture on him. After all, he's the author of scripture. Nobody can trick him when it comes to scripture. Satan tried to, right? He tried to tempt him with scripture in the wilderness. But uh, that's what they do. Next, they say, now Moses in the law commanded us that such, you know, this adulterous woman should be stoned. These attackers get pious and they quote scripture. But it's all a bunch of what? Phony baloney. It's a bunch of, of phony baloney. Evil will often do this. Evil often likes to quote scripture and uh, make themselves as angels of light. What is one of the favorite things that the enemy likes to quote from the scripture? Judge not that ye be not judged, or God is love. You know, those are some of their favorite passages. But evil hates the word of God, but will quote the Bible when it thinks it's advantageous to do so. Also, the motive of these men is highly suspect by the fact that their charge was one-sided. And as women, we all notice this, don't we? We notice this. <laughs> One very glaring discrepancy in their accusation of the woman brought before Jesus is the absence of who? The man involved in the case of adultery. You're all grown-ups. You know that it takes two to tango, right? <laughs> and these men caught this woman in the very act. So, if, if that's true, where's the man? They, sh I believe they're sheltering him 
in this accusation? Well, obviously they are, because they didn't bring him to, and he had been there when they caught her. Um, and Scripture, you know, here they are quoting Scripture, but they didn't quote all of Scripture, did they? Isn't that another one of Satan's tactics? He either adds to or he subtracts from. They didn't quote all of the Scripture because the Scripture, in such places as Deuteronomy 22, Deuteronomy 17, Leviticus 20, says that both the man and the woman are to be stoned to death. So these, these accusers were corrupt to the very core. This whole case here, this whole scenario, smells very strongly of a purposeful setup. I mean, these men were immoral themselves. Remember how Jesus had told them that um, they were an evil and adulterous generation? Remember how we studied how easily they would put away their wives, but they okayed. You know, they could get rid of their wife if she burnt the toast, if she talked bad about his mother, you know, things like that. We went over all of that. But uh, So they would put out their wives. They would divorce their wives and think it was okay to commit adultery is what they were doing just because they filled out a little bill of divorcement. So they were, they were a bunch of hypocrites. They were, they were very, very immoral themselves. If they, you know, this really stinks. It really smells of a setup. But if it wasn't, if it wasn't a purposeful setup, then these guys had to be a bunch of peeping Toms. Think about it. <laughs> what were they doing out in the middle of the night? Were they going through people's homes or booth, looking in all the booths? I don't think so. I wouldn't be surprised if many of these same guys had also slept with this woman. They knew all about her. I don't know. Anyway, we see their contempt for women, don't we? It really comes out here. Um, as we have also seen their contempt for Gentiles. Remember back over in chapter 7, verse 35, when Jesus, after Jesus had said that they would seek him and not find him, and that where he would go they couldn't come, and they said, <laughs> sarcastically, where will you go that we won't be able to find you? Oh, we know. You're going to go among the Gentiles and teach them. We already know they scorn Gentiles. They hate Gentiles. They think of them as dogs, don't they? And then they also said, or are you going to go among the dispersed among the Gentiles? So they even had contempt for Jewish people who lived among Gentiles. And then we could actually say that they even, they even had contempt for anyone who disagreed with them because the temple guard, the temple police, when they came back, without Jesus and said, we can't arrest him, never man spake like this man. What did they say? Are ye also deceived? And these guys were from high uppity, uppity chief priest families. They were all Levitical guys. And they even had contempt for them because they disagreed with them. And who else did they disagree with? One of their own, Nicodemus. When Nicodemus tried to stand up for the Lord, they also got sarcastic and had contempt for him, saying, are ye also of the Galilees? Are you one of his? You know, are you from the Galilees and also deceived is what they're saying? So it was not the law or the holiness of God that concerned these hypocrites. No wonder Jesus called them hypocrites so many times. They merely wanted to use the law in order to put a hangman's noose around the Lord's neck. But what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Just like with uh, Haman who built the, the gallows for the Jewish people. They're going to be the ones who wind up getting hung. So they presented the Lord with a sinner caught in the very act of her sin, and they presented him with what the Mosaic law had to say about such a sin, 
which is that the offenders, plural, I stress, be stoned to death. And then they set their malicious trap when they ask, but what sayest thou? Moses said, but what sayest thou? You see what they're doing? They're trying to pit him against Moses. They always were doing this. They did it over and over again. You can look back through the Gospels and you're going to see more as we go through our study that they were constantly... Maybe they got this from the time when he spoke the Sermon on the Mount. He would say, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. So now they're saying, well, what do you say? But did he come to destroy the law? No, he didn't. Remember he had told them that uh, you don't even believe Moses. You guys are always quoting Moses, but you don't even believe Moses because if you believed Moses, you'd believe in me because Moses wrote of, of me. All right, it was the conclusion of these men that Christ could not keep the law and also be merciful to sinners. And this conclusion was based on the fact that Christ had come, had cl- come claiming to honor both the law and save sinners. Remember back in that Sermon on the Mount, he had said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. That was in Matthew 5, 17. He had said that. He said, I'm not going to you know, break the law. I've come to fulfill it. But he had also said that the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And he had said that it was, uh, he had come to call not the righteous, but sinners, to repentance and he had said that the son of man is come to save and to seek and to save that which is lost so these men these religious rulers concluded that jesus could not do mo- both he could not show mercy to sinners such awful sinners especially like this adulterous woman and yet still keep the law because the law said she needed to be stoned to death So they figured that in bringing him this woman caught in adultery, he was cornered. Wrong. You can't corner Christ, can you? He's pretty smart. Oh, wait till you see how smart he is. And he's pretty good at wielding the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. After all, he wrote it. So they thought, however, that no matter what, no matter what he did or what he said in this particular situation, that he was going to be toast, you know, that he would have to contradict one or the other of his previous statements. And, you know, he would therefore condemn himself. He wouldn't be popular with the people anymore and they could do away with him. So they were very confident, very confident that they, um, we're going to be successful in this little situation that he would be at a total loss as to how to handle this particular dilemma. Um, and I know that they were very confident because, like I said, they've got thousands of people watching this whole thing. So you know they thought they were going to win or they wouldn't have done this in front of all these eyewitnesses. And the reason they thought that they um, were going to succeed is because this situation represents the ultimate dilemma of mankind. It represents the problem of how law and grace can both be satisfied. It represents the problem of satisfying both the justice of a holy God and the mercy of a loving God. You see, the righteousness and the holiness and the justice of God demands that sin be punished, right? Do you like some of these judges that we have in our country who let the sinner get off scot-free? I don't at all. 
I mean, we would not think of God as being holy or just if he let the sinner off scot-free. Sin has to be punished. So, to set aside that demand would not only produce a kingdom of anarchy, which is sort of how we see this country developing, um, but it would also mean that God is not a righteous God. If Jesus, for example, said to the woman's accusers, let her go, just let her go, they could then accuse him of being an enemy of the law of God. He would have been a lawbreaker and a, therefore a sinner. And if he was a sinner, he would be unqualified to be the sinless, sacrificial lamb of God to die for you and I, right? And we'd still be lost in our sins. Uh, but, but what then, if that's the case, if he had to fulfill the law and had to say stoner to death, then what is to become of all we sinners? Because you see, this, this adulteress not only spiritually represents the religious rulers of Israel and even the spiritual condition of Israel at the time of Christ, but she also represents every one of us. You know, we all stand condemned in her shoes before, before God, don't we? We can all be in her place because it's just one little sin. Even if we're, we've never committed the sin of adultery, yet we're all sinners and we're all condemned. So she represents all human beings because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us are, there is none righteous, no, not one. So the sinners only hope for salvation lies in the grace and the mercy of God, right? I mean, we're utterly hopeless apart from his grace and apart from his, his mercy. If Jesus, on the other hand, said, okay, that was the scenario if he said, let her go. He'd be a lawbreaker because the law said she needed to be stoned to death. But if he said, okay, she's a sinner, proceed with her stoning, stone her to death. Then you see the people, all those people, would have been severely disappointed him in him. And the, the rulers would have ridiculed the fact that he had claimed to be the friend of sinners. That he hadn't come for the, those that are righteous, but those that are sick. And that he was always um, fellowshipping or eating with tax collectors and, and prostitutes and sinners. And so they would have mocked him. And uh, any hope among the people in him being the one to set them free from the burden and the heavy yoke of the law would have been abandoned. They would have seen him as no different than any of the other religious rulers. And they would have abandoned hope in him. And once they weren't behind him, the religious rulers could really grab him and kill him. Right now, the only thing holding them back is that it was not yet his hour, but also they feared the people, that the people would mob them. And the people would be disappointed because hadn't Jesus said, um, come, come unto me, ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest because my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the people were, a lot of them were looking to him for hope. So the Pharisees really thought, they really thought they had Jesus this time. You know, Nicodemus had said, does our law judge any man before it hear him? So basically what they were saying is, okay, Nicodemus, we'll go your way. Let's hear what he has to say in this situation. I think these guys went home to their own houses and then they all met together secretly later on and plotted and planned how they were going to get him the next day. And then they went, you know, peeping toms. <laughs> anyway, let's look now at, was this, an, was this a problem of an unsolvable dilemma for the Lord Jesus Christ? 
No, it wasn't. So let's look at the solution now, starting at the uh, second part of verse 6 and going through verse 9. It says, But Jesus stooped down. This is right after they bring the woman and ask their little question in verse 5. 4 and 5, he doesn't answer them. It just says he stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, they thought he didn't hear him. He did. He heard them or he wouldn't have stooped down and wrote written in the ground. So they continued asking him and then it says he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Okay, this, this is really, I, lo- I love this part of this lesson. This is one of the most instructive pictures. Remember last week we talked about the Bible being a bunch of pictures. All right, this is one of the most instructive pictures we have in the Bible regarding the character of the gospel message, how law and grace are harmonized. This is the only time in the New Testament that we see Jesus writing. Now, he wrote the whole Bible, didn't he? But this is the only time we actually see him or hear about him writing. One of the intriguing features of this case was the fact that he did write on the ground. Now, although we don't know what he wrote, do we? Scripture doesn't tell us what he wrote. It's always fun to speculate, and you know me. I can't help but speculate, but when I get to heaven one day, it will be low on my list of priorities to ask him, but I would like to ask him one day what it was he wrote. But uh, we don't know what he wrote, but we can learn some very symbolic lessons about the fact that he did write. And he wrote how many times on the ground? He wrote twice. Christ. Now, this is not in your notes. I don't have this in your notes, so you may want to listen and maybe jot down something so you can remember this. But he wrote twice on the ground in this episode with his finger. And from what happened after each of his writings, there is much significance. All right, now listen to this carefully. After The first writing, he stood up, he lifted himself up, and he told the men to stone the woman, provided that they themselves were without sin. All right, after the second writing on the ground, the Lord dismissed the woman. He said, neither do I condemn thee, and he forgave her. All right, so after the first writing, when he stood up, his message that he then gave focused on the law, didn't it? You know, he's without sin, stoner. His fir- after his first writing, his message focused on the law. But after his second writing on the ground, and he stood up and gave a message, his message focused on grace. Neither do I condemn thee to the woman. Now, this action parallels the first time in Scripture that we read about God writing with his finger. Anybody know when that was? Yes, Ten Commandments. Back in Exodus, we are told God gave Moses upon Mount Sinai two tables or two tablets of stone of testimony uh, written with 
the finger of God. Now, those two tablets, you remember, if you all know the story, you've all seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, you know that those tablets were very, very soon broken, weren't they? It does not take man very long to break the law. It didn't take Adam and Eve very long to break the law, did it? The oral law, it didn't take the Israelites very long. Moses was just coming down from the mountain, and they were already dancing and and engaged in all kinds of immoral activity and worshiping a golden calf. So the law was broken after the first handwriting and first finger writing of God. So God is the God of the second chance, and he wrote a second set of tablets for Moses, didn't he? In Exodus 34, 1. And these tablets were not broken, but they were placed where? They were placed in the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, Exodus 40. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, was in the Holy of Holies. And it was covered, if you remember, with a lid. And what is the name of that lid on the Ark of the Covenant? Yes, that lid is called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was sprinkled with the atoning blood by the high priest, showing the mercy and the grace of God in which one day the blood of the sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice, Jesus Christ, would protect the sinner from the judgment of the law by cleansing him with that blood. Right? (laughs) Isn't it beautiful? So the two writings by the finger of God in Exodus and the two writings by the finger of Christ, who is the Son of God, in the, in the Gospel of John, parallel each other by what happened after each writing. After the first writing in Exodus, just like in John's Gospel, the law was emphasized. After the second writing, grace was emphasized. Neither do I condemn thee. So, isn't that absolutely a... Beautiful, beautiful picture. Do you know how many times in Scripture God wrote with his finger? You mentioned one. Uh Uh-huh. Two in Exodus with the tablets of stone. Two in the Gospel of John with the finger of Jesus writing here in this scenario. And one time on a plaster wall behind King uh, Belshazzar, the handwriting on the wall. So five times. We are told that God wrote with his finger in the scripture. And do you know what five is? The number of grace. It's God's grace that gave us this book from the finger of God. All so beautiful. All right, so let's back up and see the Lord's actions and his words again. All right, here's the situation. The scribes and the Pharisees present the situation before him while he's sitting, teaching the people. They rudely disrupt everything, and he doesn't say a word to them, but he stoops down and he begins to write with his finger on the ground. Now, I thought about this too when I was reading this. Part of the reason I think he stooped down was to identify himself with the sinner. I believe that she was thrust there on the ground, you know, not looking up at anybody with her head in shame, but he stooped down to be on her level. And then he wrote in the ground. And there, of course, is a lot of speculation about what he wrote. I don't know what he wrote. I can't be dogmatic about it, but I'm going to give you some ideas. Maybe he rewrote the Ten Commandments. Could be possible. Thou shall not covet. You know, no matter what he wrote, all of them would stand condemned reading it, wouldn't they? 
We all, none of us can keep the Ten Commandments. Maybe he wrote the words of Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 and 13, which say, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And it goes on and it says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins even to give to every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. And they that depart from me shall be written in the earth. Where will their names be written? In the earth. Now, he promised his own. The Lord promises his own that their names are not going to be written in the earth, but in the Lamb's book of life, in heaven. Our names are going to be inscribed in heaven. But he says here that those who forsake him, depart from him, will have their names written in the earth. And he says, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. What had he just said the day before? If any man thirst, come unto me and drink. He's the fountain of living waters. Maybe he wrote those verses. I don't know. Maybe he wrote, many, many take old you farson. What? That's what he wrote on the, ha- on the wall back in um, King Belshazzar's day. And you know what it means? You have, been fa- you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Maybe he wrote that. I don't know. Whatever he wrote, whatever it was, his accusers, just like King Belshazzar of Babylon, did not understand because it tells us in verse 7 that they continued asking him. I don't think they liked him ignoring them. And they didn't get it. Whatever he was writing, they didn't get it because they keep saying, asking him, what are we going to do about this woman? What are you going to do about this woman? Well, finally, in verse 7, I think it is, yes, he, it says, he lifted himself up and spoke to them for the first time. And talk about... Talk about using the word of God as a sword. Talking about piercing men, you know, right through the heart, right to the joints and the marrow of their bones. That's what he did. Every one of these men involved in this wicked trap was pierced through with what he said. What did he say? He said, he that is without sin. And that word is only, it's, it's a word in Greek, Anamartetos, which is the only time that particular word is used in the New Testament. And it's talking about moral sin. Basically, any of you who are without this same sin in your lives. I mean, you know, if someone had to be totally without sin to stone to death somebody, nobody would ever qualify, would they? And it was the law. So what he's talking about here is that these witnesses had to be free from the same crime, lest by stoning the condemned, they become liable to the same death. So he says, he, he that is without sin, the same moral kind of sin, let him first cast a stone at her. When he sp- finally spoke to these accusers here, he addressed the keeping of the law. You see, according to the Jewish law, it was the accusers themselves. This is something else they neglected to mention. But the, it was the accusers themselves who had to cast the first stones. It says, I think it's in Deuteronomy 17.7. I meant to double check that, but I forgot to. It says, the hands of the witnesses 
shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people, so thou shalt put the evil away from among you. You see, the Lord Jesus did not lower the standard of the law one single jot or tittle, did he? Rather, he upheld the law the whole way, the whole nine yards, he upheld it. And he stationed back right on the Jews. You know, you said, you know the law of Moses. Well, here's what it is. And he's, all, he's so good at doing that, isn't he? Just turning the situation right around, turning the tables right back on them. And he probably, now this is my sanctified imagination again, but I imagine he looked in the face of every single one of those accusers with a look that just penetrated the depths of their hearts and who, you know, in the very presence of the Holy One of God, who can have a word? Who can have an excuse? All mouths will be stopped, right? There will not be any excuses for unbelievers as they stand before Christ at the great white throne judgment. These men did not have one word to say in their defense, and not one of them would would claim to be without moral sin. Well, John tells us that Jesus again stooped down. You know, after he said, you know, he's with, he that is without sin, cast the first stone, he stooped down again to write on the ground. And when I was looking through this passage, I always like to look for little things that are interesting that just jump out at me. And you know what I noticed? I noticed that in the, in the scripture we've read this morning, that he starts out and he sat, right? In verse 2, it says he sat down and taught the people. So his, his position was that of sitting. He sat down. Then he stooped. Then he lifted up himself. Then he stooped. And then he lifted up himself. And then he lifted up the woman. And I thought, wow, what a beautiful picture of what Jesus did. You know, he was sitting up in heaven, minding his own business, having a great old time sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And yet he stooped. To come into this world for you and I, didn't he? He, you know, even though he was equal with God, he made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of man, and, and you know, even died the shameful death of the cross, where he then lifted himself up. And there's coming a day. So you see, sat, he stooped, he lifted himself up. There's coming another day when he's going to stoop again to come back and intervene into this world. And when he does, you know what he's going to do? He's going to lift all of us back right with him, just like this adulterous woman. So deep. Scripture is so deep, isn't it? So he stooped down, he wrote again, and again, we can only guess at what he wrote the second time. Perhaps from the eldest accuser to the youngest accuser, he wrote their names. Remember Jeremiah said that the, their names will be, of those who forsake him, their names will be written in the earth. Maybe he wrote their names one by one. And wouldn't they be shocked that he even knew their names? I don't know if that's what he wrote, but I do know that verse 9 tells us that one by one, beginning with the eldest and going even to the last, which means the youngest, they accused. I mean, they, uh, they uh, departed. They left, didn't they? The arrow of conviction had hit every single target. Every single man was convicted, it tells us, by his own conscience of his sin. You know what? I am glad that they still had consciences. 
I'm glad that their consciences weren't totally seared. Maybe some of these are the ones we read about in the book of Acts who do get saved after the resurrection. I hope so. But they still had consciences, and they were convicted, and they departed. These enemies of Christ had hoped to pass judgment on the woman, right? And in doing so, to ensnare Jesus with the law of Moses. But instead, he passed judgment on them. He used that same law to do so, which is so, he is so wise, isn't he? So omnipotent, so omniscient, so omnipresent. He's God. The scripture says, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? You know what? You don't corner, you don't try to corner deity. You don't try to mock God. Be not deceived. Talk about deceivers. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. You know, this week I was watching the news, and Kathy Griffin, supposed to be a comedian, I have never laughed at anything I've heard that woman say, but she received some kind of an award. Did any of you see this? And she got up to the microphone and said, now a lot of people would get up here and they would thank Jesus. But I want to say to you that Jesus had absolutely nothing to do with this. And then she cursed God. It was awful. Awful. And I think about Orange Juice Simpson. You know, you don't get away. You don't get away. You're eventually going to reap what you sow, aren't you? Well, sadly, although the scribes and Pharisees were convicted, the sad thing is that they departed. You know what they should have done? They should have gotten right down there on their faces with that woman because they were just as guilty as her. They should have got down there on their faces before Jesus and begged for his mercy and his forgiveness. But what they do? They slipped away one by one. And can you imagine their shame with all those people looking at them? But instead of being humbled, their pride got the better and their anger. Now they're really furious. Wait till you see what they, they keep coming back for more. They're gluttons for punishment. But uh, they'll come back. In fact, um, if you think about it, during this time when these accusers were slipping away, you know who else could have slipped away? The woman herself could have slipped away. But she didn't. We're told that when he lifted himself up, he saw none but the woman. All her accusers were gone. Now, I believe his disciples were still there because, remember, he's focused on teaching them things. And I believe the crowd was still there. But all the accusers were gone, and he saw only the woman there. So let's look, last of all, at the salvation, verses 10 and 11. It says, when Jesus had lifted up himself, this is the second lifting up, and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord, or I like to read it, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Her human accusers had vanished, but the true judge was still there because he alone is without sin. You know, if anyone could have picked up a stone and thrown it at her, who would it have been? Him. He alone was without sin. But he was no mere man. He was sinless, God incarnate, and she seems to have figured that out by watching him deal with the scribes and the Pharisees and by whatever he may have written on the ground. 
I think she was down there and she read what he wrote on the ground. And she seems to have figured out that he was no mere man by the way his authority had just amazingly caused all of her accusers, every single one of them, to leave the scene in utter shame. So when he asked her, woman, where are thy accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord, or however you want to read it, but that's my favorite, or no man, Lord. That's another good way to read it. But... There are evidences of this woman's salvation. Number one, she called him Lord. She did not call him master like the scribes and Pharisees had done. The best they could do is, and they were being hypocritical about it when they called him rabbi or master. She called him Lord. Furthermore, she could have been saying, no man accuses me, but you certainly could. Also, she gives no excuses for her sin, does she? And she doesn't run away, which she could have done. What did Adam and Eve do? (laughs) They ran away and hid. Perhaps this woman, and I think she probably had been at the Feast of Tabernacles just the day before, perhaps she had heard directly from this one his invitation of John 7, 37, if any man or any woman thirst come unto me and drink. And do you think this woman was thirsty in her soul? Oh, yeah. I believe that she accepted that invitation. And while all this was going on, that she came and drank of the fountain of living waters. And the greatest evidence for me saying that is the Lord's words to her when he said, neither do I condemn thee. You see, she might have been freed from from physical death because there were no witnesses left to accuse her. And the law said, Deuteronomy 19:15, that there had to be at least how many witnesses? There had to be at least two witnesses to condemn someone. So she may have been freed from being stoned to death, from suffering physical death because there were no human accusers, but <laughs> she was still guilty before a holy God for her sin. And she would have to suffer spiritual death for having broken the law. And yet Jesus let her go, right? He said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. To not condemn her soul eternally, there had to be a satisfactory payment for this woman's sin or else justice would not be upheld. So what gave Jesus the right to offer this woman grace? And say to her, neither do I condemn thee. You know what gave him the right? It was because he would die for her sin. He did not merely dismiss her sin. He would die for her sin. You see, forgiveness is free for you and I. But that doesn't make it cheap, does it? He had to take our place and die for our sin. He doesn't condone sin here. In fact, he says, go and sin no more. He's calling adultery sin. Absolutely. Some people say, oh, well, he's just condoning it, saying it's not a big deal. No, sir. He is not condoning her sin. He conquered sin. You see, I would cry again. He put the law under the mercy seat, didn't he? And then he covered it with his own sinless shed blood. And we all say, thank you, Lord.
Thank you. Well, when the woman placed her faith in Jesus as her Lord, there was thenceforth no condemnation to her. Just as it says in Romans 8.1, she was totally and completely forgiven, not only of her sin of adultery, but of all her sins, past, present, and future. Now, aren't you glad that he said, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more, instead of the other way around? What if he had said, ladies, go and sin no more, and then neither will I condemn thee? Not good. We'd be in a work system where we'd all have to go and not sin before he would not condemn us. It would be a total work system. I am so glad he said it the way that he said it. So although her accusers had left the temple that morning with guilty consciences themselves, she left for the first time in her life with a free, freed conscience. Not only that, but she left with a new heart, didn't she? She left with a new song in her heart. She left with a new Lord. Sin, her previous master, would no longer have dominion over her. She had come to know the truth, and the truth had set her free. She had a new joy in her heart. She had a new direction in her heart. She was no longer on the broad road that leads to destruction, but she was on the narrow road that leads to life. You see, she had come out of the kingdom of darkness and had entered into the kingdom of light. And that's why Jesus, in the next verse, said, take a sneak preview at next week's lesson. Verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this lesson. Thank you so much, Lord, for all that you teach us through your word. And help us to see that we have all committed spiritual adultery in our hearts because we've all put other things before you at one time or another. We've all committed spiritual adultery against our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, and therefore we are not so perfect as to cast stones at others. So, Father, help us to remember each and every day to remove first that beam in our own eyes before we accuse another about the speck in theirs. Father, I just pray your blessing now upon each and every uh, special member of this Living Word Ladies Bible Study. I pray for a good time of fellowship at Betty's house. I thank you for her opening her beautiful home. I pray for safety for everyone and just bring us back next week so that we can again get to know you better through a study of your word. For we pray the Lord, Lord Jesus in your name.